Take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Matthew, the 27th chapter. This morning I'm going to be reading two verses from Matthew 27 from the New International Version of the Bible. The two verses which I have selected as the text for this message are verses 45 and 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is undoubtedly the most pathetic as well as the most puzzling question which has ever been asked in history. Pathos is written all over it. Now, if you've been here lately, you know we've been studying the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. This is the fourth in those seven sayings. In that sense, it is the centerpiece, and rightly so, because the whole event of the cross climaxes in this saying of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first saying and the second saying, along with this saying, are prayers. You recall what the first saying was found in the 23rd chapter of Luke? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And perhaps you anticipate what the final saying of our Lord Jesus was when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But I know that you probably are aware of the fact that in this central saying of the seven which Jesus said, and in the central saying of the prayers, Jesus did not address his Father as such. How did he address him? As God suggesting that there was a distancing between the Father and the Son in this experience. And I believe that reflects the agony of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was crucified on the cross. As far as I can tell, never in Scripture, except for here, does Jesus address his Father as God. He may refer to his Father as God, but this is the only place where he addresses his Father as God. He never is described in the New Testament as asking God a question either, except in this particular place. If this question is a pathetic question, it's also a puzzling question. It's kept theologians scratching their heads for centuries. They, as they are often inclined to do, have practiced mental gymnastics trying to come up for, with an explanation of why Jesus asked this question. One such explanation is simply this that it was a statement of trust and triumph on Christ's part. Jerry read, if you were in here early enough, the 22nd Psalm. And the first verse of that Psalm is quoted by Jesus when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some scholars say that Jesus was quoting this Psalm which begins in the pits, but as you listen to Jerry's reading of it earlier, you realize that it ends up on the heights. It begins on a very low note, but ends up on a very high, triumphant note. And scholars suggest that when Jesus was quoting this verse, he was saying, I am triumphant in this situation. Well, I don't accept that. I appreciate the scholarship of those who propose that. But let me share another suggestion that has been given. Another suggestion is that Jesus really wasn't forsaken by God, but in his humanness, he felt forsaken. 
Well, I reject that hypothesis too. And then there's a final hypothesis, and that's simply this, that nature, in an attempt to cloak the embarrassment and humiliation of the Son of God, brought darkness over the face of earth as though drawing a shade over the person of Jesus to, to spare him the embarrassment of that moment. Well, I don't accept that either. I believe if we are going to find the correct explanation for this statement of Jesus, we must let the darkness which shrouded Christ interpret his saying for us because the darkness is the best interpreter of what Jesus said. Now, this was no ordinary darkness. Did you notice in verse 45? Look at it again. It said this darkness came at the ninth, sixth hour, rather, and lasted until the ninth hour. The sixth hour was high noon, and it lasted until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And this darkness was over all the land. Perhaps you recall how the Bible begins. It says, in the beginning was God, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light... And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. From the moment when God created the earth, and He spoke light into existence, there had never been an instance when there had not been light shining somewhere on the globe, which we call the earth. But in this moment, total darkness covered all the earth, all the land probably is not a proper interpretation because the word which is translated land in verse 45 really means earth. It was no ordinary darkness. It covered the whole earth. It was extraordinary also in the sense that it was the fulfillment of prophecy. The prophet Amos, in speaking about the day of the Lord, said, And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth be dark in broad daylight. Charles Spurgeon has said, midday became midnight in this particular instance. Certainly this was no ordinary kind of darkness. It was no solar eclipse because astronomers tell us that at the time of Passover, when this episode occurred, that the moon is farthest away from the sun than at any other time. It was as if God knew when He set the whole process of the stars and the planets in motion and their satellites that scientists and even theologians would say it was merely an eclipse of the sun, but it was a total blacking out. It was a blackout the likes of which has never been seen. Now, what does darkness represent? If you know anything about the Bible, you know that wherever the concept of darkness surfaces, it's suggestive of evil. Rather than go into a long discussion of this, let me give you one illustration of this. Shortly before Jesus was crucified, he pointed out Judas as being his betrayer. And he said to Judas, Judas, go and do what you must do and do it quickly. And the Apostle John talks about how after Judas left, it was night. It was darkness. Now, darkness certainly is suggestive of evil. But darkness is also suggestive, and this is where I want to spend the most time with you today, of the absence of God. You're probably familiar with what John said in his first epistle. He said, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There isn't even an inkling, a smidgen of darkness in the character of God. And where God is, there must be light. Where God is not, 
you can expect there to be darkness. When God brought the ninth plague upon Egypt, it was a darkness which was so intense that it could be felt by those in Egypt. But the commentary in Exodus 10.22 tells us that in the camp of the Israelites, there was light. Why was there light among the Israelites when there was darkness among the Egyptians? It's very obvious, isn't it? Why? It's because God was among the Israelites. Where God is, there must be light. Where God is not, there must be darkness. Now, why was the father absent? The father was absent because of what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. In other words, we're all sinners. But the Lord, speaking of God the Father, hath laid on Him, speaking of Jesus the Son, the iniquities of us all. Jesus became sin. And the Scriptures tell us in the Old Testament that God has such pure eyes He can't even look on sin. Are you beginning to get the picture as to why God was vacant? Why He was gone at the cross? It was because Jesus was sin. And because, as the Scriptures also tell us, what fellowship can light, that is God, have with darkness? Jesus became darkness that day. He became evil personified when He was on the cross, explaining this cry of anguish. My God, my God, why have you, and it's as though He accentuated the word you, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was despised and rejected of men. He knew what it was to be rejected. From the cradle, He was rejected. Herod tried to do away with Him, along with all the other male children two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. His own brothers and sisters rejected him. His own townspeople rejected him. In fact, when he preached the gospel in the town of Nazareth where he had grown up, they took him to the brow of the hill upon which that little village is set and attempted to throw him off. But the Scriptures tell us that he walked right out of their presence. Jesus understood rejection. He also understood loneliness. He understood the loneliness of having to drive the money changers out of the temple by himself without any help from any other human being. He understood the loneliness of having to debate the religious leaders of the day. He understood the loneliness, and perhaps this was the bitterest loneliness he experienced at the hands of men. When after he was arrested, his apostles deserted him and fled. But in the midst of all this loneliness and rejection by men... Jesus always could go to His Father for fellowship. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples right before He was crucified. He said, An hour is coming and has already come when you will leave Me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with Me. The rejection of men forced Jesus into a closet with God, and he drank very deeply of the affection of the Father during those moments. But here, when Jesus voluntarily, I might add, became sin, nobody made Jesus become sin on your behalf. 
in order that you might have the opportunity to get right with God. Nobody made him. The scriptures tell us, and he himself said, nobody makes me lay down my life. I lay it down on my own free will. When Jesus lay his life down and became an offering of sin there on the cross for you and for me, in that act of great love, he experienced the rejection of God. God was silent. For the first time in eternity, there was no communication between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus had experienced terrific communion with the Father. It had been unbroken. And now, if you can imagine, Jesus finds himself communing with sin. Sin and the spotless Lamb of God make strange bedfellows. But they meet each other on the cross of Jesus Christ as Jesus died for you and for me that day. Fantastic. Have you ever been lost? Were you ever lost as a child? Or if you're a parent, has your child ever been lost? Do you remember the horrible feeling you sensed when you were separated from your parent or parents? Multiply that feeling by a million times, and then you'll only begin to scratch the surface of the alienation and isolation and estrangement which Jesus sensed from his Father when he hanged there on the cross of Calvary that day. Now, what did all this amount to for Jesus? Certainly it amounted isolation. But in a word, it meant hell for Jesus. The Apostles' Creed, which we in our tradition are not familiar with, says that Jesus descended into hell. Now, hell is the absence of God. Paul tells us this in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, it's a place of eternal destruction, and listen to this, away from the presence of God. God is light. God is love. God is life. So when Jesus was on the cross, because he was away from the presence of God, there was no life in him. He had been the epitome of life, but there was no life, no joy, no peace. He experienced all that isolation and loneliness and agony so that you and I would not have to undergo that. There was nothing of God in Jesus when he was on the cross in the sense that God's, the Father's presence had isolated Jesus on the cross that day so that he could die for you and for me. But hell is not only the absence of God. Another way of saying it's a state of being where God the Father pours all of His wrath out on sin. Jesus became the focal point of every ounce of the anger of the Father that day, which was reserved for you and for me because we're sinners. Instead of seeing Jesus as His Son in whom He was well pleased when Christ was on the cross, Jesus was seen by the Father as the greatest sinner of history the chief of sinners. And God poured all of his anger out on Jesus that day. In the Old Testament system of things, once a year there was a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would take two goats to the place of sacrifice. And first of all, he would kill one goat, taking its blood into the Holy of Holies. And there where the Ark of the Covenant sat, there was a lid on the Ark of the Covenant. It was known as the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place where the blood of that goat was spilled as payment for all the sins of Israel over the previous year. 
The Scriptures tell us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He became the mercy seat or the propitiation. He became the focal point of God's wrath. Do you understand what Jesus did for you and for me? Jesus Christ was the person or the place upon which God belched out all His anger. Let me remind you of what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, If it be your will, Father, let this cup pass for me. And what Jesus was referring to is that the cup symbolized God's wrath. Jesus anticipated the wrath of God being poured out on Him that day when He was on the cross. Jesus was the mercy seat, the place of propitiation, the place of appeasement for the wrath of God. That shows you and should show me how much God loves us, how much the Father loves us, that He would separate Himself from the Son because all the agony was not the Son's, it was also the Father's. The other goat which the high priest would use in this matter of atoning for the sins of Israel over the past year was called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would be brought before the high priest. And the high priest would put his hands on the head of that goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel over the previous year. And then he would hand the goat to an appointed man who would take that man out, that goat rather, out into the wilderness, into the desert where it would be left. You see how Jesus is your scapegoat? When he died on the cross, he was deserted by God. He was taken out into the desert place of absolute loneliness. Absolute loneliness. Jesus became a curse. He was hanged on a tree. And for the Jewish mind, that meant to be cursed by God. He was cursed by God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, was cursed for you and for me because of our sins. The Scriptures tell us that we who our recipients of God's love now were formerly darkness. Jesus Christ became darkness, the light of the world, in order that you and I might be the light of the world who were formerly darkness. God the Father deposited Jesus on hell's doorstep so that you and I would not have to experience the anguish and torment of hell. God the Father orphaned His Son, Jesus, so that you and I could be adopted into the family of God. Before He departed, Jesus said to His apostles, and I believe it applies to us, I will not leave you as orphans. What that cost Jesus is that during that three hour of segment of time, when it was dark from noon until three, Jesus went to hell for you and me. He experienced all the torment of hell. Now, you and I need to be warned regarding hell from the experience of Jesus Christ. Hell is not annihilation. That is to say, if you die without Christ, you're not going to be snuffed out like that. Hell is eternal destruction. That is to say that in hell, people will experience the destruction of God over and over and over and over again. Hell is a place of consciousness, too. Was Jesus unconscious when He was on the cross? He was conscious. He was conscious mostly of the absence of God. 
And people in hell will be conscious of the absence of God. They will know who God is. There will be no atheists in hell. People will understand that they can no longer relate to a God of love and life. And it will torture them and torment them forever. It's a place of consciousness. It's also a place of great sadness. If we were able to bundle up all the hurts that are represented here today or have been experienced throughout the existence of man and put them in a pile, we would find them as to be a slice of hell. The diplomat was visiting in the home of royalty. And the little boy and he were engaged in conversation. The little boy insisted upon the non-existence of hell. And the diplomat spoke to the little boy and said to him, Son, then where do the bad people go? And the response of the little boy in trying to cover up his lack of logic was that they go to paradise too, but with a sad heart. Did you realize that there are only sad people in hell? There's no happiness in hell. There's great joy in heaven because in heaven we're with Him. The hideousness of your sin and my sin is seen in the forsakenness of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. God the Father forsook Jesus the Son so that you and I could be forgiven. God the Father abandoned Christ in order that you and I could be absolved of our sin. God the Father deserted Jesus so that you and I could be delivered from our sin. Scriptures speak of Jesus, and they say, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. You see, from the outset of Jesus' existence, Satan, the prince of the powers of darkness, has sought to extinguish the light of the world in Jesus. He's worked feverishly, and during that three hours of hell that Jesus went through, he was deceived into thinking he had won a victory. The fiends of hell cackled as Jesus anguished on the cross. Jesus overcame Satan on the cross, and he overcame sin so that you and I could have heaven and eternal life, so we could have peace and joy, so that we would not have to worry about what happens. In the dark, I love this, listen to it. In the dark, Jesus did not save himself so that he could save you. Don't you remember how people taunted the Lord and they said, if you are the Son of God, come down, save yourself, the thieves said, and save us too. Don't you want Jesus to save you today? There are people here today, if you were to die today, you would go straight to hell and you know it. Jesus wants to save you. That's why He died on the cross for you. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, His enemies, Christ died for us. That's the first thing you need to know if you want to be saved from sin and hell today. That is simply this, God loves you. Secondly, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a sinner. It was our sin which nailed Jesus to the cross. Thirdly, the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but Eternal separation from God and hell. Sin's going to pay a wage to you if you go out into eternity without Christ. And fourthly, and this is so important, 
If you confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believe that God has raised Him from the dead in your heart, you shall be saved. So what you need to do is admit your sin if you are without Christ today. And then you've got to be courageous enough to take a public stand for Christ. There are people here today who have never publicly professed Christ. Are you ashamed of Jesus? The person who knows Christ is not ashamed of the Lord. People who understand what Jesus has done for them ought to run to a place of public profession of faith in Jesus Christ instead of lagging back in embarrassment. Give your heart to the Lord. I want to close by reading something which Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the last century, wrote. You listen very carefully as I read. O come thou to him, he hangs upon the cross, his arms are open wide, and he cannot close them, for the nails hold them fast. He tarries for thee, his feet are fastened to the wood, as though he meant to tarry still. O come thou to him, his heart has room for thee. Isn't that good news? It streams with blood and water. It was pierced. Jesus died for your sins because He loves you. Aren't you willing to give your life to Him and live for Him?